the human heart has this remarkable capacity to love in the face of fear, to love in the face of adversity, to love in the face of tremendous oppression and hatred and violence. And that, uh, since Tibet was invaded in 1959 and uh, tremendous violence and oppression and genocide and of the monks and the nuns and and the Tibetan people, you know, and these stories. I actually talked with a monk from Tibet who escaped, who'd spent, I think, I forget, 14, 19 years in prison and tortured and, you know, tremendous deprivation. And their practice, his practice, and, and his, his friends and fellow monks and nuns was to cultivate compassion for the jailers, who were often cruel and mean and harsh, and you know, from that from that perspective of karma, you know, his perspective was that the the jailers were, were creating tremendous amount of negative karma. That they would reap the consequences of those negative actions. So they they would practice compassion, extend to the jailers who were you know, cruel. And I think it's probably what preserved his mind because he came out and you know, was quite buoyant and um, you know scarred clearly but also resilient compassion is one tool of many uh, that supports a resilience right so it's easy to get caught in contraction and blame those hunters those people those whoever the other is right and we other a lot. Right? Our society is falling apart with the division and the othering of each other, whether it's Republican, Democrat, or pro-life, pro-choice, or whatever side of the spectrum you're on. And a lot of animosity and hatred. And as I mentioned to the group when we were debriefing the, the, the shooting incident, incident and I was reflecting on that phrase of the Buddha, hatred never ceases with hatred. Only by love alone does hatred cease. Hatred never ceases with hatred. But it's so easy for us to get caught in hating, in judging, in blaming, in othering. And so we create this duality. We make ourselves separate. Where is the hunter that lives within us? Where is the one within us that causes fear or is violent in some way? We're not separate. All of that lives within us. When, when we talk about interconnection and non-separation, it's real. It means everyone and everything is not separate from us. The hunter and the hunted. I wish I'd brought that poem. Maybe I'll read it tomorrow from Thich Nhat Hanh. Call me by my true names. He talks about the arms merchant in Uganda selling arms and how he's the arms merchant as well as the person being killed as a result of the arms, etc., 
can we have a view and a heart as wide as the world that sees everything within us. We're not separate. Not easy. You know, I was, part of my mind, I was, you know, like an SAS, Navy SEAL, like, you know, all in black, combat, you know, and going out and somehow getting all the guns and throwing them in the river and, you know, doing this kind of combat operation. (laughs) Which I would be pathetic at. (laughs) I'd get within half a mile and go, who's that blundering elephant there coming down the hill? (laughs) With his English cravat, you know. I read this um, piece from uh, Angela Zarian, wonderful uh, elder teacher, now passed away, um, spent her life uh, studying with indigenous elders and, and assimilating some of that wisdom. And she wrote this piece called Lessons from Geese. And I think we saw a geese, was it yesterday, flying off from the pond? And she talks about five different facts and different lessons we can learn. And I think it speaks to partly the sense of community and being together here today. Fact one, as each goose flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the birds that follow. By flying in a V formation, the whole flock adds 72% greater flying range than if each bird flew alone. Lesson, people who share a common direction and sense of community can get where they are going quicker and easier because they are traveling on the thrust of one another. Right? That's very true here. Right? We come into the hall, we see people meditating, we see people walking, we see people being contemplative outside, and it inspires us. It's like, oh, look at them, you know, meditating, reflecting. And so we, we ride on the, the draft of each other's practice, each other's good intentions, each other's... Um, uh, uh, efforts here in the hall and elsewhere. It's very real, you know. If we, if the retreat was, you just go to your casita or your tent and you go there for four days and then you come back on Friday and we check in with you and see how your practice went. Right? It'd be interesting. It'd be different. It wouldn't be quite as robust, probably, as you know the fact that you, you know, you. you get up, you know, at six in the morning, cold, and, right, and you partly do it because you know there's going to be other people sitting and you're sitting together and your practice influences and matters as much as everyone else's. It's a lovely thing, this jewel of sangha, of community. That's why we come together. There's something, you know, we could do this online, you know, (laughs) except we couldn't. (laughs) There's something about being with living beings, right? Shared intention. We feel the goodness of that. Just like the geese. Fact two, when a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of flying alone. It quickly moves back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. Lesson, if we have as much sense as a goose, we stay in formation with those headed where we want to go. We are willing to accept their help and give our help to others. 
And that doesn't mean conforming in a kind of rigid way, but just understanding the the thrust and the, of that common vision and intention. Fact three: When the lead goose tires, it rotates back into the formation and lets, and another goose f- uh, flies to the point position. It pays to take turns doing the hard tasks and sharing leadership. As with geese, people are interdependent on each other's skills, capabilities, and unique arrangements of gifts, talents, and resources. So how much we can learn from each other, sharing, supporting, giving, etc. Just think about all the people that have supported you being here. Not to mention... Katya and Gary and Amy and Sarah, but all the people at home taking care of whatever your need, you know, animals and children and work and garden. and right? we, We're interdependent in a very real way. We rely on each other. And we like to think we're independent, but that's really a, another optical delusion of consciousness. Fact four, the geese flying in formation honk to encourage those up front to keep up their speed. (laughs) I don't know why they honked, but that seems like a good reason. We need to make sure our honking is encouraging. (laughs) In groups where there is encouragement, the production is much greater. The power of encouragement, she says in parentheses, to stand by one's heart or core values and encourage the heart and core of others is the quality of honking we are seeking. So we're in silence, we're not doing a lot of honking, but we can (laughs) do silent honking, loving, caring, well-wishing, supporting, being aware of each other and kind to each other. But in our lives, right? how are we using our speech? How are we we using words that are uh, skillful, kind, supportive, truthful, useful? important part of our practice is our, how we share, how we communicate, how we listen, how we support others through our words. And it's just so easy. It's like we're so sensitive. You know, one word or one mean statement or one you know, undermining comment right, can create tremendous uh, painful waves for us. So, and often we're sitting with the reverberation of things that we've said or others have said to us that are, are harsh, cruel, mean. Fact five, when a goose gets sick, wounded or shot down, two geese drop out of formation and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with it until it dies or is able to fly again. Then they launch out with another formation to catch up with the flock. Lesson, if we had as much sense as geese, we will stand by each other in difficult times as well as when we are strong. Such a beautiful metaphor. The geese you know, have the awareness of when, when, it, when one of the flock is sick or shot down. And, and then you see that. I, I actually love watching geese because they're incredibly um, like this one ecosystem. And there's always one, like you've seen them in the long grass, there's always one with their head up. Right? And they take turns. They do. That some one of them's always tracking, you know, for predators. You know, it's a, a fair game for foxes and coyotes, and um, it's an incredible sense of uh, 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 looking out for each other, which I think is very beautiful. 
so, so here we are in the forest, and you know, like life, it's everything. It's both beautiful and challenging. And today was you know, maybe a little more unusual, challenging challenge than than we're used to. Very rare that we have gunshots here, so that was startling to me. And um, and I think because the because we you know we come to to nature for safety and refuge, I think it's the, the the juxtaposition was was more alarming. And makes me appreciate what what is here and and the beauty and the, the goodness that is here and I was also aware in the groups that there's a lot of tenderness a lot of vulnerability a lot of pain a lot of difficult life experiences loss change Identity issues, body and aging issues, and um, I'm just you know, in, in my role as a teacher, I get to hear a lot of stories, a lot of life, and a lot of challenges. Also, a lot of beauty and joy, and but um, I was very, I felt very <coughs> tenderized today by the tenderness in the in the groups and the sharings the vulnerability and the, the rawness and I was appreciating the the fact people felt safe enough to to let down some of the armoring and, and to speak to how hard life can be you know whether our circumstances you know, often our circumstances may be quite blessed, you know, physically, financially, or otherwise. But as a human being, we're subject to a lot of um, vulnerability and pain. It's part of being human. It's why these teachings uh, stress the importance of kindness, of compassion, of love, of joy of equanimity, of finding balance in the midst of it. Because it's not easy to be human, not easy to move through this life with its ups and downs and joys and sorrows. And I feel glad that you're here. I feel glad that you have access to some of these practices. I feel glad that you work with them in your life because they're life-saving, literally, for some people. Literally, meet many people where they say, if I hadn't found the Dharma, if I hadn't found mindfulness, if I hadn't found loving-kindness and self-compassion, I might not be here. I might not be alive. And it's real. 
These practices are profound. So what I'd planned to talk about tonight, prior to, you know, life happening, <laughs> life getting in the way of my Dharma talk. <laughs> God damn it. May you be happy, God damn it. <laughs> um, I was teaching at uh, Insight Meditation Society this year, which is in, in Massachusetts on the East Coast, and I teach with Sharon Salzberg, who's a dear friend and have done for the last, I don't know, 15 years, a loving-kindness retreat. Some of you were on the last one. And, um, uh, and Sharon and I have this ongoing joke. Sharon is a city girl and does not really relate to nature and doesn't really like it, actually. It's kind of annoying, it's cold, and it's buggy, and it's just inconvenient. (laughs) She gets lost. She gets lost. And um, she was hanging out with uh, Krishna Das, they teach together a lot, who's a kirtan singer, and they were both at a hotel, some resort, Malibu or somewhere, and um, they were sitting on the balcony overlooking the beach, and one of them says to the other, and he does also has not, you know, he's a city guy also. And, and one of them says to the other, said, hey, you know, it's sunset. Should we take a walk on the beach? And the other one said, nah, it's too much sand. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, so we joke back and forth about, you know, I'm this nature boy and she's the city girl. And, um, and anyhow, I was, I was feeling very um, moved to, to give a talk about nature and love, because for me they're one and the same, and how love, how nature is such a support for the heart and for the, the, the Brahma-viharas, these four boundless qualities of the heart, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so I gave this talk there, some version of it, and um, so I thought I would share some of it and just... Um, and just uh, point to that which you're already experiencing, but framing it in the context of the Brahma Viharas, these divine abodes. So in the in the Metta Sutta, the Loving Kindness Sutta that the Buddha uh, taught, he said, um, as part of this sutta, he says, "In wishing, in gladness, and in safety, may all beings be at ease." Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the seen or the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. May all beings be at ease. This is a beautiful teaching. This is a beautiful orientation to live into. But then I was reflecting for myself, well, what does all beings mean? 
That's a lot of beings. And how does one encounter these beings? And I was thinking that the more, you know, aside from being in the city, there's a lot of, you know, two-legged homo sapiens around. But aside from that, you know, being out in nature, we encounter a lot more beings. Bugs, ticks, flies, birds, insects, mammals, beings in the waters and the rivers and the creeks and the oceans. And so, you know, we often use this phrase, may all beings be happy, right? In our meditation and etc. And um, I think it's important that we make that real. What does it mean, all beings? And so the more time we spend outside, we can begin to feel into the the teeming mass of life. There was a recent uh, meta-analysis of uh, the amount of species on the planet. There's differing numbers of 8.7 million species of animals, insects, 16,000 of those on the endangered species list. And so when we think about wishing kindness relating to all of life, generally in the Buddhist tradition, it's, it's talked about as sentient life. But I think as our understanding grows through uh, biology and the other sciences, that we need to extend our understanding of what sentient life is. So there's a lovely book called The Hidden Life of Trees, written by a a forester in Germany, and he talks about all the different ways that trees communicate, sensitive to threats, communicate with each other, share resources, and, you know, positing a strong case for extending our understanding of beings to trees. Certainly indigenous cultures the world over relate to trees as living beings, not just a piece of wood, or a piece of lumber. So, so to think for yourself, these qualities, these beautiful heart qualities, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, how do, you, how do they get evoked in nature? Right? Think about your time here. What's evoked your heart to feel love? Okay. Maybe seeing... The raven today laughing at us, you know, or the squirrels getting busy collecting acorns for winter. Oh, I saw a deer the other day walking so tenderly through the long grasses. So many things touch our heart, and, and, and it's quite easy to feel a sense of love, but also easy to feel compassion. Compassion is that quivering of the heart that feels tender for the vulnerability of life. Right? So there's a lot of vulnerability in the natural world because it's harsh. Right? I think about the elk walking in the forest. You know, they're not safe. It's hunting season. Right? The deer, not safe. Right? The ducks and the geese, not safe. 
So many beings survive by eating other beings. Not safe. So letting our hearts feel that tenderness, that care, that compassion. You know, when we came up from the hike yesterday and I saw the lone goose and I thought, where's his people? Where's her people? Geese don't hang out alone. That's not their thing. They hang out in flocks. Maybe it got sick. Who knows? Maybe it's injured. Didn't seem to seem to be flying fine. But it has many things in nature that touch our hearts. And we feel that vulnerability, a shared vulnerability. You know, at Spirit Rock, where some of you have sat retreats in uh, in late spring, the swallows return and they make these nests above the bathrooms, and and they're very visible, and they make these nets, nests out of spittle and the little babies are in there and you can see them when they grow, they're little you know, shivering and shaking and waiting for mama. And, and they're just so vulnerable, that, that, that tenderness, right? they can't fly, they just, you know. And sometimes the great horned owl comes and hangs out above the courtyard opposite the nest and the parents are freaking out, swooping around because, you know, they're prey for the for the owl. And then the quality of joy, appreciative joy in, in the context of, of these Brahma Viharas, but it's also the quality of joy. Right? Just think about your heart, how your heart's been touched in joy this week. Right? I don't know about you, but I find it hard to not to look at an, at, an, at these aspen trees, the golden aspens, and not feel joy. They're flittering and shining and radiant, and you know, I'm aware because I'm very familiar with this ranch. I'm aware that, that there's no wildflowers or very few wildflowers around, but the aspen are like the wildflowers, and they're just resplendent with their, their, their coats of gold. And then, lastly, this quality of equanimity, this steadiness, this <coughs> imperturbability. You know, nature, you know, in all of its challenges and vicissitudes, forces, demands, encourages us to find a steadiness in the midst of changing circumstances. So one of the things I, I ask and reflect a lot on is, why, why do we like nature so much? But the question I ask myself even more is, why do we find nature beautiful? Why, isn't, why do we experience beauty in an aspen tree? Or beauty in a moss-covered rock face? Or beauty in the flight of an eagle? Or beauty in the rusty colored grasses? Because you know, we could equally be programmed where we don't find it beautiful. And you know, and back pre-romantic poets in England, mountains in Europe were considered ugly. They were considered foreboding, they were wilderness, they were untamed, they were ugly. And it was only, not only, but particularly through initially the English romantic poets who started move lived in the mountains in, in the Lake District where I used to grow up and hike 
um, and they started waxing poetically about the beauty of mountains that people began to actually have this new found appreciation for mountains. But I still think it's interesting that we find an aspen tree beautiful. I think we're very lucky to be living on a beautiful planet. I mean, if we were living on Mars, you know, I mean, maybe it's beautiful, the dust and the, you know, I don't know. I know some people are trying to get there, but that's another story. So this is from Rumi. Uh, not Rumi, actually. It's from um, uh, Meister Eckhart, 12th, 13th century Christian mystic who was banished from the church and most of his writings were uh, burnt because they were too heretical because he kept seeing himself as no, as, and himself and the earth as sacred and divine. When I was the stream, when I was the forest, when I was still the field, when I was every hoof, foot, fin, and wing, when I was the sky itself, no one ever asked me, did I have a purpose? No one ever wondered, was there anything I might need? For there was nothing I could not love. It was when I left all we once were that the agony began, the fear and questions came, and I wept and I wept, tears I had never known before. So I returned to the river, I returned to the mountains, I asked for their hand in marriage again, I begged, I begged to wed every object and every creature. So our evolutionary heritage is we're from the wild, we're animals. And there's something deep in our evolutionary DNA that resonates with nature, with the wild. So what else does nature teach us? What do we experience when we're out here? One of the things that people often report is we feel less separate. It's remarkable we can be living in a city of 10 million people and feel isolated. But when we come out into nature, often we feel a greater sense of connection, greater sense of intimacy, where we feel less separate less other. That's interesting in itself. Do you feel more connected here in nature? Some of you nodding. I think again it's it's a homecoming. And particularly when we, you know, as I talked a lot about this practice when we enter the woods with this spirit of presence and attunement, I think it allows a much deeper connection. We feel that sense of non-separateness. We feel ourselves part of. This is from D.H. Lawrence. We cannot bear connection. We must break away and be isolate. We call that being free, being individual. However, beyond a certain point which we have reached, it is suicide. 
What man most passionately wants is his living wholeness, his living unison, not his own isolate salvation of his soul. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me, that I am part of the earth my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is nothing of me that is alone and absolute, except my mind, and we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surface of the waters. I love that reading because I feel like he is um, uh, about a century ahead of himself in terms of where how we're understanding the mind is an empty phenomena. There's no self or agency in the brain. Recent discoveries with neuroscience that just validating wisdom teachings that have been around for thousands of years, that there's no such thing as separation. What Einstein calls the optical delusion of consciousness. So when we slow down, we come to the woods, we get to feel that sense of connection, feel that sense of not being separate. And something relaxes in our being. Something feels more at home. And when we feel at home, relaxed, then we're more likely to feel a heart open. When the heart opens, we feel connect, more connection. We feel love. We feel loved. We feel cradled. to speak a little about some of the teachings that we get from nature not the wisdom well the wisdom teachings I was going to I was going to give a talk about um, the wisdom dimension of nature practice but I just didn't feel quite where we are in, as a retreat so but I also, but I still want to speak to ways that nature teaches us And one of the profound things that happens when we're outside is, um, you know, when we're in like, for example, that beautiful ponderosa pine trunk that's been standing for, I don't know how long, it's been standing for as long as I've been here, 25 years. Every year I think I'm sure it's going to fall this year. You know, it's battered and rotten and decaying and aging and weather-beaten. And it just stands in its beauty. And someone was commenting today about that it's beautiful, just as it is, all gnarled and weather-beaten. And we can appreciate its beauty, its wild rawness. And maybe we can begin to, we look in the mirror here, more scruffy or whatever you are, you know, little, you know, sun, wind-beaten. And we can appreciate, oh... I'm kind of getting like the tree, kind of <laughs> gnarled and weather-beaten and, you know, rough around the edges. And, and it's okay. It's okay. It's like I'm part of nature too, you know. 
just like our houses are, you know, society tries to, you know, makeup, whatever, hair products, whatever, you know, remove our wildness in a certain way. This is from New Zealand poet Fleur Adcock, who spent some time actually in the Lake District, which I think is where she wrote this uh, poem, where the, in, 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 in the tradition of the romantic poets, it's called Weathering. Talking about herself, the weathering of nature. My face catches the wind from the snow line and flushes with a flush that will never wholly settle. Well, that was a metropolitan vanity, wanting to look young forever to pass. I was never a pre Raphaelite beauty, and only pretty enough to be seen with a man who wanted to be seen with a passable woman. But now that I'm in love with a place that doesn't care how I look, and if I am happy, happy is how I look, and that is all. My hair will grow gray in any case. My nails will chip and flake. My waist will thicken, and the years will work all their usual changes. If my face is to be weather-beaten as well, it's little enough lost for a year among the lakes and vales, where simply to look out my window at the high pass makes me indifferent to mirrors and to what my soul may wear over its new complexion. I love that. If my face is weather-beaten as well, it is little enough lost. And I love going into the wilderness, backpacking and, and being away from mirrors and uh, any ref- self-reflection, phones and all that. And... Um, and just dropping that whole idea of self-referencing. And then whenever I get back to town, as I'm sure some of you have experienced, you look in the mirror and you go, wow, that's not who I am. <laughs> Looks a little ragged. <laughs> kind of like the ragged, but it's, you know, it's like so different from actually the lived inner experience, which is so fluid and vital and, and unpinnable to some form, some image, some shape. So, so Katya, if you can remove all the mirrors uh, from the lodge and just, just let ourselves be wild and... <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> you know, we come to to appreciate the, this, the, the idiosyncrasy and the gnarled, weather-beatenness of, of life and trees. I love the, the aspen trees here, you know, the pockmarks, the blackened scars that come from the, the elk rubbing their fresh horns to get, their, to get the, hair, the hair, itchy hair off their horns. So all those beautiful blackened marks are from the elk and they make the they give a, a rawness and, and, and beauty to the to the aspens. So, I'm just going to serenade you with some poems tonight because you know it's been a hard day. So, um, so another lesson that we learn, uh, and I've kind of spoken to this, but I'm going to share a poem about it. 
is um, is uh, that we can find at times a sense of place or a sense of home or a sense of um, homecoming. I know whenever I come to Visitas, I feel like I've come home. There used to be a sign in Spanish. Uh, one of the founders, Linda Velarde, was uh, she's uh, Chicana, and the the sign wrote maybe still there. I don't know. I don't think so. Ya llegaste. You have arrived. You have arrived. You have already arrived. And there's something about nature and that lets us arrive, arrive in our own skin. You know, uh, uh, our life often seems a turbulent, toppling forward frenzy into the next moment, into the next thing, into the next whatever, rushing in, in with incompleteness. And um, I think I read that poem, maybe I forget which, what I've read, I think by Mary Oliver, where she's talking about, you know, the trees you know, whispering and like, stay a while, you know, go easy. And I feel that, you know, from the land, it's like, oh, slow down. You know, come sit by the river and then let's have a conversation. The river wants to talk. The stones want to listen. The trees want to give shade and And, I, and I, I've been saying for a while, nature is trending. Uh, in that, there's a there's a huge, um, you know, increase in in, in interest and in, in engagement with the natural world, parks, and because people, I think, are so hungry, so so out of tune, so out of place, so disconnected, and pull to nature where we can finally give ourselves permission to slow down and be and feel is is there. This is um, Mary Oliver's well-known poem about geese. It's really about homecoming. You do not have to be good or walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despairs, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes of the prairies and the trees and the mountains and rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So what else is nature teaching you? Many things, small and large, subtle and deep, in this season of autumn and in this theme of transience and permanence, nature's often teaching us about letting go, 
letting be and letting go. Letting go of seasons, letting go of beauty, letting go of color, letting go of light, letting go of many things. And it seems so natural in nature, the letting go thing. It seems a little harder in ourselves, a little harder in our lives, a little harder in our relationships, a little harder around our body aging or you know, energy waning or whatever it is that you notice changing. It's a great line in one of Mary Oliver's poems. She says, Everything I have learned in my life leads back to this, the black fires of loss whose meaning is salvation, whose, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. Everything in my life leads back to this, the black fires of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever quite understand. To live in this world, she says, you have to be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones as if your own life depended on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To love, to cherish this body, this this community, this place, this beautiful earth, to hold it against our bones as if our life depends on it, which it does. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. And sometimes we come to the woods and we, we come with the question, what am I being asked to release? What am, I, what am I being asked to put down? What am I being asked to let go of? To relinquish? To give up? So I want to just close with this theme of love and, and to hold for your question, hold, hold the question for yourself about well there's a lot of questions around love but what, I'm, what am I being asked to love? How do I love? How do I love this? How does nature pull forth love from my heart? How can I take the love that I feel here from or towards nature into my life, into my relationships, into the struggles and painful places in my life? How do I love those who seem to be other? I was teaching a retreat 
this this summer. I was it was part of my uh, nature teacher training and training people to lead this work, and um, it was the last retreat, and I wanted everybody to do a sunrise meditation. So I was on on a friend's land up up in the foothills of the Sierras, and so I took the group to this adjoining piece of land. Um, where there was an open vista of the Sierra and, and the sunrise. And so we all lined up sitting on this footpath, waiting for the sun to rise. And I overlooked the fact that the, the farmer was running his cows in this field uh, that we were sitting in. So we all lined up and we were just sitting, waiting for the sun. And then the cows came over. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's morning entertainment. <laughs> Maybe breakfast. I don't know. Let's check them out. So we were sitting in this long line. And then the whole herd of cows, including the bull and the, and the young, came like where you are and just stood. <laughs> like, the big, beautiful black eyes. just like... <laughs> you know, and the little... The calves would come out and you know, kind of get a little more bold and kind of get close and then run away back to their moms and completely adorable. You know, sunrise, like, forget the sunrise. <laughs> doing cow meditation. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, just, you couldn't help but love these beautiful beings, these big black eyes and their eyelashes and their big flapping ears and big wet snouts. And, and it was remarkable. It was beautiful. And then we had a circle later in the day, and, and two, at least two people, I remember two, and maybe more, said, I am never going to eat beef again. Like, I cannot eat meat, having looked at those cows in the eyes in that intimate way. It's a beautiful flowering of the heart, and compassion, and activism right there. When the heart opens and is touched, we can move, it moves, it moves us in certain ways, it can do. So if you're, you know, around some cows, go sit in the field with them and, well, actually here, we could go do it here, we could just go. <laughs> Don't chase them away yet, can't you? We need them for the next <laughs> enough words for now. I might leave you with one last poem. Well, let's sit together and sense our hearts and sense all the ways that our heart is touched love, receiving love from this earth, from the beings here, from your interaction with trees and animals and birds. 
I'll close with this poem called Redbird Explains Himself. I assume a cardinal, but I don't know. Yes, I was the brilliance floating over the snow, and I was the song in the summer leaves. But that was only the first trick I had hold of among my other mythologies. Don't stop there. Stay with me. Listen. If I was the song that entered your heart, then I was the music of your heart that you wanted and needed. And thus wilderness bloomed there with all its followers, gardeners, lovers, people who weep for the death of rivers. And this was my true task, to be the music of the body. Do you understand? For truly the body needs a song, a spirit, a soul. And no less to make this work, the soul has need of a body. And so I am both of the earth and I am of the inexplicable beauty of heaven. Where I fly so easily, so welcome. Yes, this is why I have been sent to teach this to your heart. I was the song that entered your heart, then I was the music of your heart that you wanted and needed, and thus the wilderness bloomed there. May the wilderness forever bloom in our hearts. for your kind attention.